Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Josh. Um, I'd love to get to know you if we haven't met before. During my week, I work not only at our church offices doing worship pastor stuff, but I also teach at Ambleside uh, School downtown. I teach music in the elementary and middle grades. I teach a class called Composer Study and Choir. I teach a spiritual formation class with our high schoolers. And then I also lead our school's chapel services each week on Friday mornings. Uh, my wife, Sophia, and I have five kids, six chickens, and most recently, two kittens. So if you're doing the math, the adults in our house are vastly outnumbered by both people and animals. Although, I, will, I should clarify, the chickens are not inside the house. They're outside. We're outnumbered, but we wouldn't trade it for anything. We, our family's been at CBC for about almost five years now, which is crazy, even just to say, and we could not be more, and it's not just hyperbole to say this, but we really feel like we could not be more grateful for a community of believers that have been so generous to us and so grateful for the goodness of God that's made all of that possible. Well, this week, as our sermon title slide uh, indicates, we are taking a brief pause I don't know if you can see that or not. I think it's pretty cool, though. Um, A a brief pause from Genesis to zoom into one idea that Mike closed with last week. We ended last week with a feast, right? Joseph and all of his brothers in Egypt feasting together. As Mike said, farmers from Canaan are invited into the feast of the prime minister in his mansion, Feasting is central to the biblical picture of salvation. We see feasting all through the Old Testament. We see many parables of Jesus as he describes the feast of the Father. And it's hard to pick one, but if I were to pick my personal favorite story about a feast in Scripture, it's the one that we're going to look at this morning. So it's found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to go through verses 1 through 13. I'm reading from from our church's uh, NASB version, which is also on the screen. So you can use your Bible or on the screen. Let's hear this story together, then we'll pray. Then David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lo-Debar. Everyone say Lo-Debar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lo-Debar, Mephibosheth the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, do not fear, 
For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word this morning, as we come to this story, we know that what we need so desperately in the world, in our own hearts, is not just more education. It's not just more knowledge. What we need most is to be woken up, awakened to the way that we have been rescued by you. Thank you, Father, that you have made yourself known through Jesus, the word And thank you that you make yourself known through these words from 2 Samuel. Guide us now with your spirit to see the story that we find ourselves in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, feasting in the house of the king. So most of us in this room know about King David. He was a little boy, the youngest of eight brothers, when he was chosen by God to succeed Israel's first king, King Saul. He was the shepherd boy who went out to battle against Goliath. And as he stood there in the middle of the valley, it seemed like among all the strong men of Israel, he was the only one who trusted in God to deliver his people. He was the musician who played and calmed the madness of King Saul. He befriended the son of King Saul, whose name was Jonathan. And the two of them were best friends. In fact, David promised that he would love and support and help Jonathan his whole life. Meanwhile, King Saul tried to kill David again and again and again, while David had mercy on King Saul again and again and again. This is all covered in the historical Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And at the very end of 1 Samuel, in a stunning turn of events, both King Saul and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, are killed in a single battle, the Battle of Gibeah. And in the years since that battle, David is king, and he's been cleaning up all the messes that Saul had made. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, David finally defeats the Philistines, the bitter enemies of God's people. And so now Israel's shame is just a memory. And we can imagine what all the people were thinking in this moment as Chapter 9 begins. The enemies have been defeated. The new king is on the throne. They are looking forward to a beautiful future, new things to come. They are all looking forward, but not David. 
he's looking back. Remember what it says in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Now this is interesting. While everyone is looking forward, David's looking back. And how would a bad king finish this sentence? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul, of the old king's family, that I may kill him? That's what a new king would want to do, destroy any other people who would want to be the heir and would maybe come in and try to take the throne in the future. But that's not how David finishes the sentence. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Instead of death, David is interested in showing kindness. And it's not just nice feelings. It's not just like, I want to give him some kindness, a smile, right? No, that word show kindness in this verse is a Hebrew word. It's one of my very favorite Hebrew words. It happens over 250 times in the Old Testament. Mike has talked about it. I even preached a whole sermon on it a couple years ago. It's one of the most important words in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about it a lot, and there aren't really simple definitions of hesed. Uh, Miles Coverdale in the 1500s created a new English word, loving kindness, to show hesed. Examples of translations of the word hesed are loyal love, faithfulness, mercy. My friend Ken says it this way. He said, uh, hesed isn't the kind of love that gets you to a wedding. It's the kind of love that gets you to anniversaries. And see, Jonathan and David had a friendship defined by loyal love and faithfulness. And now David still has that chesed for Jonathan's family, and that desire is, pursue, is, is pushing him to go on a hunt. Is there anyone left in the family, or are they all dead? So they find an old servant of Saul's named Ziba, who might know. Verse 2, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant, at your service. The king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show, he changes a little bit here, to whom I may show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Say that word again with me. Lodabar. Ooh. Now, if you're reading through the Bible, at this point, you'd know exactly who Ziba is talking about. We were introduced to Jonathan's son earlier in the book. He was five years old on that tragic day when both his grandfather and his father were killed in the battle of Gibeah. He became an orphan on that day, but not just an orphan. When the boy's nurse heard that Jonathan and Saul had been killed, she picked up the child and ran with the whole group of people in fear of the advancing Philistine army. And in the chaos of everyone running, she accidentally dropped the boy and he broke his feet and his legs. And in a time of bad medical treatment, this little boy wasn't able to recover. He was never able to walk again. So in the same day, he became both an orphan and disabled. And in the ancient world, a physical disability like this meant he would have to be taken care of by someone else his entire life. He could never live on his own. And not only that, 
But now, as the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul, this little boy becomes the heir to the throne in some people's eyes, and therefore, in some people's eyes, the enemy of David. So he's taken into hiding, because if the new king finds him, people think, then the new king will want to do away with him. This little boy has been hiding for 20 years. He's now 25 years old. And now David is asking pointed questions about him. Where is he? Ziba says he's at, where is he at? You know what that word means in Hebrew? It literally means no word. The son of Jonathan is in the middle of nowhere. And you'll notice in the entire conversation, no one even says his name. He's a no-name. He's a nobody. He's not even really seen as a person. The narrator is painting a picture that on that day in the Battle of Gibeah, this young five-year-old boy fell much farther than his nurse's arms. He fell from being the heir to the throne to instead the heir to pain and sorrow and isolation and exile and everything that life is not meant to be. And as people have read this story through history, they have consistently seen that this little boy is a picture of us. Because we are sons and daughters of Adam, whose father was the high king of creation. We have royal blood in our veins, made in the image of the king. And in the garden, not the battle of Gibeah, but the battle in the garden, on a single day, our parents fought and fell in their battle against the serpent. And we fell too. And now we're orphaned from our heavenly father. When we fell, we became crippled, not in our feet maybe, but in our ability to love God and love our neighbors. We are exiled east of Eden, and all of us tend to forget who we are, who we're supposed to be. We don't really even know our names anymore, and we just kind of listen to what the world tells us about who we should be. And you may think this sounds depressing. Way to be a cheerful person this morning, Josh, you might be thinking. One of my high schoolers recently uh, asked me why we talk so much about sin and death. It's just so depressing, Mr. Head, she said. Looking at humanity, looking at our world, and calling it sinful and broken may feel depressing. But I would say that looking around at all the hurt and the abuse and the anger in the world and thinking that this is all normal, that's depressing. If what the world has right now is as good as it's going to get, that is crazy depressing, right? C.S. Lewis has this great illustration in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, where he talks about how we're all kind of like a kid playing in the mud on a dirty, blind alley. And we're just so content playing in the mud, someone comes to us and says, okay, it's time to go on holiday. We're going to the beach. And we don't even have an idea of what that means and we'd rather just be staying there in the mud. We're like, no, I'm good. I'll just eat this dirt. I identify with that story a lot, because at the end of each day, when I look back at my day, at the words that I've spoken, the thoughts that I've had, the actions that I've done, the things I've purposefully left undone, it's hard to be honest, because my life is not at all stuff to be proud of. My decisions, my words, my thoughts, they were not all good. And so often the hardest thing for me to do is to go to God in prayer in that moment 
the last thing I want to do is confess my sin to my wife, to the Lord. And we need to admit that in all of us, there is a part that just is like that kid who wants to play in the mud and pretend like God isn't seeing me. I'd rather stay in my little corner and go to sleep. But when God calls my name, when the king calls my name, I can't hide anymore. And that's exactly how the son of Jonathan must have felt. If the king is calling for the grandson of Saul, then anyone would know what was coming. King David is surely looking to cut off the line of Saul by cutting off the head of the heir. Kings would do it all the time. The king is called for him, and the king gets what the king wants. Verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, from no word. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Think about what this would have looked like. This son of Jonathan would have had to be carried in. He couldn't walk by himself. They bring him to the throne before the king. He comes out of the darkness of his hiding into the terrifying light in the presence of the king. This king who was looking for him and summoned him from his dark exile. And he falls on his face. He bows to the king. Think how difficult that motion would have been for him. He braces himself for what's coming. He must have been shaking with fear. But the king doesn't do what everyone expects. In the depths of his fear, down there on his face, this son of Jonathan hears a word that no one else has said in the entire passage. It's his name. He hears his name. Verse 6, And David said, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And notice what it says. And David said. Throughout this whole story, the narrator has been referring to David as the king, or even King David. But here, it just says David. As if the king, it's like a clue, as if the king was eye to eye with his son of Jonathan, as if he were a friend, or perhaps a brother, stooping down and saying with a smile, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant, which is kind of like saying, at your service, what can I do for you? It hasn't hit him yet what's about to happen. Mephibosheth thinks he's going to need a how-can-I-serve-you speech. But just like Jesus, David doesn't want Mephibosheth to serve him. He's actually after the opposite. David said to him, verse 7, Do not fear. Those three words, how many times through Scripture do we hear those three words given to someone to whom good news is about to be proclaimed? Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness, hesed, loyal love, faithfulness, to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. David looks at Mephibosheth, and almost the very first word that comes out of his mouth after do not fear, is the word hesed. He is saying to him, not, oh, you poor guy, I feel so bad for you. I'm going to have pity on you. Instead, he is saying your identity is fundamentally changed because you are now an object of the king's love. 
you are caught up in a promise of hesed, a promise of loyal love that was made before you were born, something you did nothing to earn, Mephibosheth. Think about it. This little boy wasn't even born yet, and David wasn't even technically the king yet when he made the promise to Jonathan. And here they are, all these years later, David looking into the eyes of Jonathan, his best friend's son, and fulfilling that promise. Mephibosheth is going to be showered in mercy, not because of anything he's done, but simply because of who he is. And it's mercy that matters. Check out David's next words. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. The table in the ancient culture, as Mike was saying last week, was the boundary of family. To eat together means that you have unity, you are one family. And do you see what David is actually telling Mephibosheth here? You were the son of my best friend, you are now my son. You were an orphan. You are now a son, and not just any son. You have been adopted to be once again the son of the king. What David is saying is this. My table is now your table. My food is now your food. My house is now your house. In verse 11, it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This crippled outcast orphan is now raised up into the household of the king of Israel. It's surprising. It's glorious. It is ridiculously over the top. And it is not just the story of Mephibosheth. Because what did David say back in verse 3 to Ziba? Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? This is God's chesed. This king showing kindness to this guy, shaking in fear in the throne room, is a picture of God's kindness to us. It's a love that makes us children of God. 1 John 3.1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Here's the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8.15 For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. What Paul is saying is that Mephibosheth's story is our story too. Mephibosheth went from being an exile in hiding, a slave to fear, and was instead adopted as a son. And so did we. In Christ, we move from being slaves to fear to being sons and daughters of the Most High God. But it doesn't stop there. Like, that would be awesome. That would be enough. It doesn't actually stop there. Remember what happened next to Mephibosheth. Look at verse 9 with me. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. What does Mephibosheth receive here? An inheritance. He becomes an heir. Compare that to what Paul says in the very next verse in Romans 8. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Then verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, 
heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Not only are we becoming sons and daughters of the king, we are becoming heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is our story. And when we realize that God sees us and that basically all of our lives are lived in that light, in that viewing, it's tempting to try and hide. It's tempting to just be filled with fear and stay in that first place of what people were expecting David to do. He sees me and he's going to destroy me. But then we hear our name. We hear the same words Mephibosheth heard, do not fear for I have decided to show you the kindness of God. It's not a kindness that we've earned or worked hard for. When King David looks at Mephibosheth, he sees Jonathan. Everything that he did for Mephibosheth was an overflow of his love for Jonathan. And when the father looks at us, he sees his son, Jesus. Everything he does for us is the overflow of his affection for his son, which is infinite. The relationship of father, son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, has been going on since before anything was even made, way before we were born. And out of that unending eternal love, we are invited to the feast. We are invited to the house of the king. We aren't invited to the feast as some servants in the corner working hard as waiters or waitresses for the important people at the table. No, we come to the feast as sons and daughters, as the children of the king. I don't know about your family, but when we do dinner together, there are children in my family who will literally fight with each other because they want to sit next to me. I don't really get it. I'm not that special. I'm not that important. But they really want to sit next to dad. And they'll start fighting. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to actually sit over there at the other table. Um, Just kidding. Not really. They all want to be next to their dad. At the table of the Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, there will be no fighting. We all get to sit next to our father. He draws us close. His greatest joy is to be with his children, being with you. We have been given this beautiful story this morning. Mephibosheth shows us the story we're actually in. But my question for us is, have we forgotten it in our daily lives? So here's a question for you. Is your everyday normal life a reflection of this feast in the house of the king? Is your everyday normal life a reflection of this feast in the house of the king? I would highly recommend just taking an audit of how you spend your time, where you put your attention, Where does your creativity go to? Where does your leisure go to? Who are you with? What does your alone time look like? Are all those moments informed by, shaped by, the fact that we are now sons and daughters living in the light of God? Or are we just settling for less? Are we more like that little boy in C.S. Lewis's illustration, playing in the mud, Is your everyday normal life a reflection of this feast in the house of the king? Because yes, we who are in Christ will all feast in the end. But I want to say, even now in this broken world, God has given you a community. 
He has given you a household of God. And if you are missing out on the life of the community, you are missing out on a big part of the life that God desires for you. Think about the book of Galatians. We went through Galatians a few years ago. That entire letter was written because one group of Christians was refusing to eat with another group of Christians. Feasting is super important. I can't even describe how good for my soul it is to get together, to share a meal, to play a game, and just to tell stories and laugh. It's not a luxury. It's an essential part of Christian life. But you may be thinking, well, of course Josh is saying all this stuff. He's an extrovert. Is this just the gospel according to extroverts this morning? He probably leaves the party with more energy than when he came. To which I'd say, yes, of course. But is feasting just for those who are outgoing, who, have, who are extroverted? I want to say feasting doesn't have to be a big group. In fact, feasting can even be alone in your room because as Christians, we are never alone. Psalm 63 at Ambleside, every Wednesday morning we say these words as a, as a student body. It says this, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You hear how it's feasting language? And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. We can feast on Scripture without another person in the room. I cut out like so much, like a thousand words of my sermon last night. It was going to be right here. So if you want to talk about that later, feasting on Scripture alone, um, talk to me about it later. But here's the thing. It's not just that. The Christian life isn't just me and Jesus It's we and Jesus. That'd be a good t-shirt. Maybe your next one. It's we and Jesus. Think about it. The way Israel remembered their identity as God's people, the way Israel remembered what God had done for them was through their feasts every year. Our salvation is pictured in a meal in the upper room with Jesus' closest friends. In the Anglican liturgy that I grew up in, uh, the phrase that precedes communion each week is this, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Seeing the Lord's Supper as a feast, pointing to the ultimate feast in the end. When we do that, any sort of feasting, we are enacting an echo of the future, an echo of the new creation where our sorrows and our tears and our troubles will be no more, and we will see the Lord face to face. I think the worst part about our church, I'm just going to pause there and let me, the worst part of our church, I think, is the fact that we have to break down everything and leave right at the end of the service, right? If we ever get a building, that is the single thing that I'm most looking forward to having, just being able to be together. But do we have to wait till a building happens to be able to do that together? A few weeks ago, our family did lunch with another family after church. It was just a random thought that Sophia had. Hey, would you ask them? And we went out to eat together. Eating out for us with our seven people and five children that um, love to eat out. Uh, Stop it right there. Uh, Because of money, it's just a really hard thing to do. It's an awesome experience. We love it. But we can't really do it with our budget. But, man, it was so beautiful to share that right after church with another family, that now Sophia and I are talking about, okay, how can we actually get this into our budget to maybe do this on a regular basis? What would it look like for you to do that too? We can't stay in this room together, but we can continue the conversation down the street. We can deepen our friendship as God's people 
on our own time. Think about it. What would happen to the depth of relationship throughout this room if we all started doing that with some sort of regularity, feasting together? Can you imagine the benefit that our church would have from that? There would be needs that would be known. There would be loves that would be shared. We would be enacting what David does here for Mephibosheth and extending that feast. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian, he wrote a whole lot about feasting and about the life of the church, the community life of a church. In a moving passage, which he wrote at the height of Nazi Germany's power, the regime that would, in just a few years from these words, that would imprison him and that would ultimately end his life. This is what he wrote. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. They receive each other's blessings as the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is so much happiness and joy, even in a single encounter of one Christian with another, what inexhaustible riches must invariably open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in daily community with other Christians. The way that he says this helps me to realize that feasting isn't just a flippant thing. It's something holy. It is an act of war. To feast together with other Christians is to declare that sorrow and death will not have the last word. It's to say that there is a day coming when those from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be joined together in one feast. And we must lean into that, even today, because our tendency is to flatten that out and just to eat with those who are either in our family, already within the walls of our kitchen, or to eat with those who are like us. But every tribe, tongue, and nation points us to a deeper diversity than I think we're often comfortable with. Because what we tend to do is we tend to leave people out. In fact, the story of Mephibosheth is one of the ways we see God's care for those who are like Mephibosheth. Those who are physically or mentally disabled are close to the heart of the Father. And my prayer is that they become close to our heart as well. I read this story, and I think about our friends across the street at the cluster homes. I think about the ways that they bear the image of God. I think about how they minister to us every time we go over there. We serve them, but they really serve us. I think about their frail hands and feet and their strong, sturdy voices. I think about the amazing grace that they belt out in song, the amazing grace that has welcomed them as brothers and sisters in the kingdom. It's the same amazing grace that welcomed us. I also think about my brother-in-law, Johnny, who has Down syndrome. Johnny has one extra chromosome, and it causes him to look and sound a little bit different than the rest of us, but I'm also convinced that that extra chromosome gives him a whole lot more joy than anyone else I know. He is the most fun person I know, without a doubt. I'll never forget the sight of him breakdancing at my wedding in his tux. When he was growing up, Johnny's mom, uh, my mother-in-law Barbara, she fought hard in the public school system to have Johnny fully included in everything that was going on in his school. When I first met Johnny, he was a senior in high school. He went to a very large high school with hundreds in his class, 
When I first met him, he had recently been voted the homecoming king at school, which means, for those of you who don't know what homecoming is, uh, that on the, in the middle of the football, homecoming football game halftime, he was brought out to the center of the field, given a crown, given a scepter. When I first met Johnny, it was a year after the homecoming game, and he was still carrying around the crown and the scepter and telling everyone, I king, I king. Johnny is someone who much of the world, and sadly much of the church, would exclude. But because of the kindness of his classmates, he was able to live out the story of Mephibosheth, but not only the story of Mephibosheth, the story of us. Having feasted with Johnny a whole lot over the years, I can tell you he has taught me a lot about what it is to be fully alive. My extended family has been deeply blessed by having four brothers, four sons with Down syndrome at the table. And this is why the church through history has consistently been intentional with including those who tend to be excluded by the world, widows, orphans, the disabled, the abandoned, bringing them to our tables. It's not because we need to help them, but because they bring so much to the table. It's not even that they need us. It's more true that we need them. Friends, we have all been welcomed by the king so that we can welcome others to the feast. Others who don't look like us. Others who are all over the place. So I want to challenge you this morning to simply remember the story every day and let it work on you. This story of King David and Mephibosheth points to the story we must remember. It's the story of men and women exiled and alone. It's the story of the king who brought us into his house. And unlike David, our king didn't send a messenger from afar. He sent himself. Our King Jesus traveled to the far country of his broken and dark creation. And on the cross, he laid down in the mud with us. He laid down in the mud of our sin. And in his resurrection life, he has gone before us to prepare a place in the Father's house. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows your name. Just as David knelt down and whispered Mephibosheth's name to him, the eternal king drew near to us, whispered our names, and invited us into the feast. This feast in the house of Zion. We sang Psalm 23 earlier. That's, of course, written by this very same King David. King David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our great king. You not only reveal what it means to be fully human, to be fully bearing the image that we are made in of God, but you reveal the heart of the Father. To see you, Jesus, is to see the Father himself. Lord, you offer us an even deeper adoption than Mephibosheth was given on that day in David's house. We are raised up out of an eternal death and exile from all that you intend for us. 
and you bring us into an eternal feast. Thank you, Lord, that we have that to look forward to. I pray that within this congregation, within our families, within our households, within um, all of who are here, that we would be intentional at including others in that feast. Lord, you have brought us together for a purpose. Your deepest desire is to bind us together as one people in unity, not because we think alike, not because we look alike, not because we have the same taste, but simply because we have the same Savior. Jesus, you have saved us all. Help us to look forward to your feast with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, you can probably guess what's going on.